Hey, uh, welcome to church this morning. Grab your Bible. We've been in this uh, journey through the book of Acts, and we're going to continue that um, as well. But before we jump into really the heart of the passage, there's a few stories I want to share with you. Um, One is uh, something that took place in 1952. In 1952, Jim Elliott, uh, the American missionary, left the comfort of American life um, with the courageous goal of sharing the good news of the gospel with unreached, unreached tribal people in the Amazon jungle. Um, People thought that he was crazy to do this. Um, It was very dangerous. Uh, They didn't think that it was a great idea. And this is what Jim Elliott famously said. He said, he is no fool. In other words, I know what I'm doing. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Talking about even laying down his very life. And we had no idea what that would look like because he spent a couple years in language school and then did some ministry in some of the larger cities of Ecuador Um, But after a few years, they made contact with a remote tribe known as the Warani people, Warani people. Um, They started out uh, well with this. They exchanged gifts with one another. They began to learn the language a little bit. They started to get to know each other until on January 8th, 1956, uh, Jim Elliott, along with his four other uh, missionary friends, landed their uh, plane along the the river there in the Amazon to continue building uh, a friendship with this tribe of people, when out of nowhere, they were attacked with spears. And that day, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Yowderin were killed, and their bodies were scattered uh, across the river there in the Amazon jungle. News of their death actually uh, spread quite quickly, not just into the United States, but around the globe. They were on the cover of Life a Magazine, and people were horrified, um, yet also strangely inspired by the death of these five uh, martyrs. Eventually, missionaries would go back to that very spot, including uh, Jim Elliott's wife, uh, Elizabeth Elliott, and to share the gospel with that, that tribe of, of people. And eventually, many would receive Christ, and there's still a church in that area to this day. Well, some of you may have heard the story or recognize the name Jim Elliott. Um, Here's one you maybe don't recognize. This is a picture right here of a woman by the name of Shaquilla Bibi. In uh, March 9th, 2009, a group of Muslim extremists attacked her small village in Pakistan because there was word that there were some Christians that were living in this village there. Uh, the Christians and, and Bibi and her family hid in this little church and they were, were terrified. As the attackers grew closer, uh, Shaquilla could have stayed hidden, but in an effort to protect others, she actually stepped forward, stepped out of this little church where she was attacked and beaten to death with bamboo rods right there in front of her family and in front of her community that, that sat there watching. The death of this young Christian wife and mother, uh, while unbearably tragic, ultimately in the end ended up saving the lives of many others that were spared on that day. Here's a couple more. Maybe you guys remember these two people. Their names are Rachel Scott and Cassie Bernal. They were students at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado in 1999. Both of these girls took seriously uh, what it meant to live as a Christian on their campus. Um, They were well-known and respected there at Columbine High School for their faith. In fact, Rachel uh, wrote this in her journal one day about kind of the the, the heart of Christ that she wanted to have for her campus. She said, I want to reach out to those with special needs because they are often overlooked. 
I want to reach out to those who are new in school because they don't have friends yet. I want to reach out to those who are picked on or put down by others. And so that was the heart of these two young ladies. Yet on April 20th, 1999, a day that really changed so much in our country, uh, two fellow Columbine students walked into the school fully armed and they began shooting. Eventually, they killed 12 students and a teacher, including Rachel and Cassie. The story goes that before Cassie was shot, they looked her in the eye and they asked her this question, do you believe in God? She knew the shooters and she said, you know that I do. And those were the very last words that this young lady spoke before giving up her life. Yet here we are almost 25 years later and their stories have inspired millions of students toward kindness, inclusion, anti-bullying, standing for their faith. And finally, one more picture I don't know the names of these 21 Egyptian or Coptic Christians. Egyptian Christians are are part of a group called Coptic Christians. Um, But God surely knows the names of every single one of these. Most of them were construction workers. They were just trying to support their families. When in 2015, they were captured by Muslim extremists and they were marched onto a beach in Libya. There with cameras rolling, uh, they were beheaded uh, right there uh, on film. This horrific video that was circulated by ISIS was meant to uh, terrorize the people of this little Coptic church there in Egypt. And as is often the case, that backfired because not only did it inspire those family and, and friends of these people um, even more uh, boldly, but, uh, but people in Egypt and around the world were so inspired that Christians around the world began to join in solidarity and generos- generosity with these people who had so faithfully given their lives. In fact, it has been said, it has been argued that there There are more Christian martyrs in the last 120 years than in the first 1900 years combined, if you can imagine that. And yet we know that in the world today, as we meet here in safety and comfort and joy, we know that in the world today that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in places like North Korea, China, India, Iran, Libya, Nigeria, Eritrea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, Somalia, Yemen, Nicaragua, the Philippines, Egypt, and many, many more who face severe pressure, physical violence, and sometimes even death. And it's important on a day like this for us to remember that we are a part of a global body of Christ. And one of the teachings of Scripture is when one part of the body suffers, even though we don't know them, even though they might be on another side of the world, when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And so it's important for us to remember those, uh, those people and to say those names. In fact, in your notes, if you are interested in learning a little bit more about the persecuted church, church around the world. I put a couple websites in there for uh, two really great organizations. One is Voice of the Martyrs, um, and the website is there, and then the other is called Open Doors International, and it's a great way to pray for, uh, stay informed, and be engaged on that issue. But as we think about that, as I shared those pictures of those four people or four groups of people, um, I think there's something that all of them have in common. And here's what I want to suggest each person that we've talked about this morning has in common. They were ordinary people. They were just ordinary people who paid an extraordinary price, and yet they made an extraordinary impact. 
And today, as I said, we're journeying through the book of Acts, and we come to a very important section in the book of Acts. In fact, it's kind of a a hinge passage. Things begin to change and look different after what we're going to read about um, today, because we're reading about the story of Stephen. And Stephen was a man uh, who was just like us, but he became, as Steve said earlier, the first Christian martyr. He was an ordinary man, who was willing to pay an extraordinary price, and he made an extraordinary, in fact, I want to suggest, incalculable difference was made because of the life of Stephen. So our outline this morning is going to be super simple. We are going to just walk through Acts chapter 6 and uh, a chunk of chapter 7, and we are going to see the story of Stephen. We'll begin by just looking at who he was and, and what he was all about. Then we're going to look at some accusations that are made against him. Then we're going to see how he defends himself against these accusations. And spoiler alert, his defense doesn't go very well because the next thing is we're going to read about his death where he is killed, uh, followed by uh, his reward, and then ultimately his impact. And so that's what we're going to walk through. So we started actually last week, or we're first introduced to Stephen last week, where if you were here or caught it online, you'll remember that the church faces this kind of dilemma. For the first time in this exciting part of the, the early church, they face potential for a real conflict in the church. And the conflict is around what could have been a racial issue, a financial issue, a family issue, because a group of people say, that the the Greek-speaking widows are not being cared for in the same way that the Hebrew-speaking widows are. And so the church kind of faces this crossroad, and they come up with this idea that let's let's, uh, choose some people that can help take care of that need. And so they select eight, I'm sorry, seven uh, men, all with Greek names and likely Greek heritage, to be the ones that would lead this food program that would make sure that all of the widows and all of the orphans and all of the people um, were cared for. Um, So these seven men were not part of the original apostles. That's important for us to remember. These are new people uh, to the group. In fact, I don't know this for sure, but perhaps someone like Stephen was uh, a Greek-speaking Jew, so he came from outside of Israel, but he would come for the festivals or, or come for the different ceremonies, and maybe on the day of Pentecost, he was there in Jerusalem, and he just happened to be there on that day when the Holy Spirit comes down and blows with fire, or blows like wind, and, and fire comes down, and, and, and they speak the language of all the different people, and maybe Stephen was one of those ones who heard the gospel in his language on that day. And And maybe he was one of those first 3,000 that believed and were baptized and added to the church. Well, here we are six chapters later, and it's a few years later now, and he was just a regular guy in the church. But here's what you need to know. He was an ordinary man who was living a very Christ-like life. It's important for us as we think about Stephen to look at the life that he was living because it's really meant to kind of stand out um, as kind of an incredible example of someone living a Christ-like life life. In fact, let me just walk through real quick some of the things that we read about Stephen in the first kind of uh, 15, chap- 15 verses of chapter 6. Uh, in, in verse 3 of uh, Acts chapter 6, we see that all of the seven people that were chosen are known to be well-respected and full of the Spirit and wisdom. And you might want to just circle or kind of star that phrase that they were full of the Spirit. And just notice how many times this is a description uh, of Stephen. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He'd surrendered himself to empty his old life and to be filled with the new life of the Holy Spirit. So he was well-respected, full of the Spirit and wisdom. Then a couple verses later, specifically about Stephen, we're told that he is singled out as a man full of faith 
and of the Holy Spirit. Few verses later, in verse 8, we're told that he was full of God's grace and, and power. Uh, and in fact, he is the first non-apostle uh, to, to do a miracle. It says that he did signs and wonders among the people. And he was the first time that it was not an apostle that actually did a miracle. Again, in verse 10, it describes Stephen this way. It says, we're told that he spoke with wisdom and with the Spirit. And then in verse 15, there's kind of this interesting thing where it says that his face was like that of an angel. There was some sort of heavenly glow to Stephen's face, probably a reference either to Moses on the, the Mount Sinai. Remember, he goes up and receives the, the Ten Commandments and his face glows there. Or maybe I think more likely a reference to Jesus who up on the Mount Tra- of Transfiguration also takes on this glow. And so Stephen is compared to them. So he's just this ordinary man, but he's living like Christ, and it's really starting to make a huge difference in his life. And what happens from there? Let's pick up the story by reading in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, where it says this. It says, So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, and he performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia. The synagogue of the freedmen is exactly what it sounds like. It was a synagogue with people that had been set free from slavery and yet still hadn't really experienced the freedom, spiritual freedom that comes in Christ. How do we know this? Well, we see that they actually begin to argue with Stephen. But catch this, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So what are they going to do? They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, which was like the, the group of judges there, the religious leaders. And they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, talking about the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intensely at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So it's interesting there. They want to stand up to Stephen, but they can't do it. They can't stand up to Stephen's wisdom. They can't find anything wrong with him. So what do they do? They begin to make up accusations about him. They take some of the words that maybe he had actually said, but they twist them around to mean something that he didn't intend, and they accuse him with those words and then try to stir up negativity in the community about him. By the way, this is a ploy that we see the devil use from the very beginning and is still something that we see in our world today, right? It it just hurts my heart to think of some of the accusations that are leveled against Christian people in our, our world today, right? Christians are painted as, as bigot, bigoted or, or hate-filled or narrow-minded. Now, that's not to say that Christians have not done and said some, some horrible things, but we also know that people are going to twist things around and make it say what they want, want it to say. As a general rule, I believe that as Christians, especially in this day that we live in, when we follow Christ and we live by the fruits of the Spirit of of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, some of those kind of things, 
as a general rule, in our community, people are going to respect and, and receive that. They might not agree with it. They might believe all of it. But for the most part, people will be respectful of that. But that's not always the case. Sometimes there will be people who will accuse no matter what. And it happens in our world, and it happened in Stephen's world. So what do they accuse him of? They say, well, we heard that he was blaspheming Moses, and he was blaspheming God. And then kind of the heart of the accusations are this. They say he's speaking against the temple, and he's speaking against the law. So if you're, you know, bad-mouthing the temple, and you're bad-mouthing the law of Moses, then Stephen, you are in big trouble. And so they put him on the spot. They bring him in front of the, the Sanhedrin, as many as 70 religious leaders, and the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? Are these charges true? And what comes next is Stephen's opportunity to defend himself. So next section is Stephen's defense. Although it's fascinating to me because for starters, he never really tries to defend himself. He actually just tries to defend Jesus and the gospel. He never kind of takes up his own position. Um, But what he does is he breaks into this long sermon to explain why Jesus can be trusted and that ultimately Jesus is the fulfillment of both the temple and the law. It reminds me a little bit of what Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason that you believe. And so Stephen is put on the spot and he he gives this answer. So what he does is he breaks into what is the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts. So Acts chapter 7 is primarily Stephen's sermon. Um, And here's a couple things you need to remember. You need to remember that Stephen is not necessarily even an apostle. And yet his sermon is longer than Peter's sermons longer than Paul's sermons, which is not easy to do. Paul's a little wordy. Um, But he preaches these, and and he's just a lay person. In fact, what is his official role in the church? He's the guy that waits on tables for the Greek-speaking widows. And yet I love this because God uses someone who is willing to faithfully serve in the shadows to, in the right moment, be brought out into the spotlight. And so Stephen preaches the longest sermon in Acts, and I'm going to admit something here that probably a lot of pastors don't say out loud, and I'll just, I, maybe I shouldn't even say it out loud. But when you first read Acts chapter 7, verses 2 all the way through 50, it doesn't seem like the greatest sermon to me. It's kind of long. It's a little boring. He kind of walks his way through all of, of the, a lot of history of, of Israel without really, you know, applying much to it or, or kind of going anywhere with it, it seems like. And, and so you read that, and, and I, I believe it's inspired. I think it's there for us. And as you're going to see, I think there's stuff we're supposed to learn from it. But at first reading, it just seems kind of long and wordy. Uh, and yet, I, I, you want to give Stephen a little slack because it's one of his first sermons and he's still a lay person. It kind of reminded me of one of the first sermons that I ever preached. It was not the first one, but one of the very first sermons I ever preached. And I was um, the youth pastor at this church plant in Colorado where I was in seminary. And they invited me to give the sermon that day. And it happened to be a day that like some big shot from the denomination was visiting. And so this guy, you know, big, big shot stands up and he actually introduces 
me, and he gives this long, like, flowery introduction. You know, we're so happy to have this new young pastor, and, you know, we're so excited, and everybody pay attention to this guy. And so I stood up, and I started the sermon. The guy went and sat down in the very front row, and you guys, I'm not joking. I'd been preaching about five minutes, and I looked down. This guy is fast asleep. I mean, like, head bobbing, drool, the whole thing. So... By the way, pastors can see that when it happens. It's just, just a little heads up, <laughs> a little warning there. Um, so anyways, you want to give Stephen a little uh, slack, but here's what he does, because it actually is very intentional and I think really important. Stephen retells the history of Israel, specifically four big biggies from Israel. He talks about Abraham, he talks about Joseph, he talks about Moses and David. And he makes this argument... <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> he says, remember the accusations. They accuse him of speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. And where he's going with this whole argument is Jesus is the fulfillment of both of those things. You Sanhedrin think you guys are the expert on the temple, the expert on the law. Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of both of those things. So about the temple, he makes this argument. He says, God's presence has been with all of those people. God's presence was with Abraham and Joseph and Moses and and David. And, And they lived all over the place. They lived in different countries. They lived in different times. They all lived actually before the temple even existed. So he's making the argument that God's presence is is not confined by a house built by human hands. And we know the prophet Isaiah tells us that later. God, God, you know, inhabits the temple, but, but God doesn't live just in one place at one time. And he says, look at the life of, of these guys. Uh, God was with them. And, and so perhaps Stephen was even thinking of this very important thing that we see in Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down, he comes in fire. And it reminds us very much of when Solomon's first temple, the first temple is ever built. They have this big dedication ceremony. They dedicate the temple. And what happens? God's spirit comes down with fire and it fills the building. It fills the temple. Now we see that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Again, it comes down and fills with fire, not a building, but people. As if to say, the temple is not about a building. The temple is about me and you. We are the one that carry God's spirit in the way that the temple used to do. And so Stephen is saying, Jesus actually fulfills the temple. And now we are the ones that carry the Holy Spirit. About the law, Stephen makes this point. First of all, he's super respectful of Moses and the law and the history and all of those things. But his argument is this. He's like, basically he says, you guys, you're accusing me of disrespecting the law. I'm not the one disrespecting the law. You guys are the ones that disrespect the law. How? You are the ones that have always ignored and persecuted the prophets. You've always done that. Your ancestors have done that. And now you've done it again with Jesus. And so he really lets them have it. And so Stephen even makes this case over these 50 verses um, that, 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 uh, that, uh, that, he's, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. But then, and Steve read this earlier, but let's just focus on this again. We see uh, how he ends his, his sermon. I thought what Steve said is great. It's, the, it's like the worst so what 
forever because this is how he applies the sermon to the people that are listening. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. Not exactly the kind of thing you want to say to the Jewish leaders. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those that predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Talking about Jesus. And you have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. So, ouch. That's a little bit of a strong way to end that sermon. If I were Stephen and I kind of ended the sermon like that, I would have got off the stage quickly and invited the worship team up because the people are mad at this point and we're going to see what happens. In fact, the next section that we come to is Stephen's death. This is how they respond to this guy's um, sermon. It says in verse 54, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. I don't even know what that means, they gnashed their teeth. They're like, you know. I think the comparison is to animals kind of thing. They were that, you know, unruly. And it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices and they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that, at last he fell asleep. So in the Old Testament law, there is a provision for a person to be received the death penalty for blasphemy. And specifically, it does say that you can stone a person who is considered to be guilty of blasphemy. But it's hard to tell here if this is like the official Sanhedrin, you know, carrying out capital punishment, or more it just reads like the crowd is so upset with this, they can't believe what they're hearing, and so they rush at him, they're all stirred up, they rush at him, they grab him, they take him outside, and they begin to throw stones at him until he is dead. And as Steve was saying earlier, what a horrible way that is to even think about watching someone die or dying. But here's the thing that I think is just fascinating. We made this point that Stephen was an ordinary person who lived like Jesus. And he lives like Jesus all the way until the very end. In fact, I want to suggest that not only does he live like Jesus, but he dies like Jesus. Why do I say that? Listen to the words that this spirit-filled believer shares even as he's giving up his life. He says, Lord Jesus, receive me into your kingdom. Lord Jesus, uh, welcome me in. And then he says this, with his last breath, he prays, and, and God, forgive them. Forgive these people that are throwing these rocks at me. How filled with the Holy Spirit was this guy to have that perspective His heart was that they would too one day come to know this Jesus that had transformed their life. And so he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. And and as we heard, who does that sound like? That sounds so much like Jesus himself. And so that is Stephen's death. Um, What is Stephen's reward 
then at that point. Well, I want you to notice something that kind of strange that's mentioned in these verses. You might not have noticed it as strange until I kind of explained this a little bit. But when they rushed at him, uh, Stephen says that he saw heaven opened up and he had a, a vision or he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And you say, well, why is that so strange? I've actually known a lot of people that at the end of their life are given some sort of vision of heaven or vision of Christ. It's actually... I've heard that from a lot of people as they've come uh, toward the end of their life. Um, But what's different here is, what do we know about where Jesus is today? The book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus up to heaven, where we are told time and time again in the Bible that he is seated at the right hand of God. Why is that so significant? It's actually a big part of our theology, and it goes like this. You see it in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 says this, It says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty in heaven. And the idea is, is that Jesus was the perfect priest. No priest would ever sit down until all the work was done, right? They were busy making the sacrifices, doing everything. It wasn't until everything was completed that they could at last sit down. And so when Jesus sits down at the right hand of God, it's one more way of him saying, it is finished. The work is done. There is nothing left for me to do but to sit here as the conquering king until I come again. It actually should be very reassuring to us. And so it's kind of a part of the theology, and it makes it kind of strange when Stephen says, I see him. He's not seated He's standing. He says it not once, but twice, Jesus is standing. Why was Jesus standing there? Well, we don't know exactly, but here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest that Jesus is standing to welcome Peter, or welcome Stephen home, and to pay honor to Stephen. To say, I've seen your life. I've seen your faithfulness in life. Now I see your faithfulness in in death. Come on in. Welcome home. I I stand to receive you. And you guys, I, I, I can't, you know, argue this from the Bible or anything else, but I just believe so strongly that when those 21 Egyptian, uh, uh, Egyptian Christians entered into heaven, that Jesus stood and said, welcome home, welcome home. And when Shaquille Bibi comes and, and has given her life, Jesus stands to say, come on in, come on in. This life that you've lived, it was hard, but it was only a minute. And now you have eternity in heaven. And Jesus sees our lives. And this is what he says. He says, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my heavenly Father. And I think that's what's happening here. What a great reward that is. And it should challenge us to live that kind of life so that we will receive that well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome home. Because no matter what trial and persecution we face in this life, it's nothing compared to eternity in heaven. And Stephen is given a little glimpse of that. Well, that's the end of Stephen's life, but it's far from the end of his impact in this world. Um, And so as we kind of wrap this up, I was thinking a little bit about the book of Acts. So far in our study, we've seen Stephen preach, I'm sorry, we've seen Peter, excuse me, Peter uh, in the first five chapter preaches a few different sermons. And here's what you notice. Whenever Peter preaches a sermon, everybody responds great. There's, you know, thousands of people believe, everybody worships. It's this great experience. Uh, Peter preaches these sermons. Now you come to Stephen who preaches the sermon and it's not thousands of people who believe and respond in worship, but it's dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people that respond in anger and rage. And you think that seems so unfair. 
But here's what I want to suggest. Tertullian said it like this way back in the second century. He said, the blood of the martyrs is always the seed of the church. The blood of those martyrs has an extraordinary impact. And so here's what I want to suggest. Peter's sermons impacted thousands of people that were added to the church. But from this point on, millions of people are going to be impacted because now it's not going to be about addition, but it's going to be about the multiplication of the church. And from here on out in the book of Acts, things start to look a little bit different. Why is that? Let me just wrap it up with a couple more verses. The beginning of chapter 8 says this. It says, Saul was there and he approved of their killing of him. But on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. Where? In Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So two reasons why Stephen's uh, life and death spur on this new era, era of growth. The first one is this, is that we see this new persecution starts to take place. He's kind of the, the first one. He's kind of the match that lights the flame. But this persecution comes, and suddenly all of these people in Jerusalem, what do they have to do? They have to scatter. And where do they go? They go to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately we know they go to the ends of the earth. Remember what Jesus said he was looking for at the very beginning. He says, this is your mission. Take my message, be my witnesses, be my martyrs to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of of the earth. And so what we look at is so horrible and so tragic, and it is, God takes it and uses it for his glory because he starts to take those people and push them out, push them out to the place where now they can begin to share the gospel um, in those places. So that's the first reason we see things start to grow and change. The second one is this, is there's this man, Saul, who we're introduced to. And at first we see that he's just sitting by, watching, overseeing, supervising the persecution. But I want to suggest that in the life and the death of Stephen, seeds are planted in the life of Saul. Because people are always watching our life. And they're watching how you're going to handle persecution and how you handle struggle. And that's what happens to Saul. And we're going to see those seeds that are planted in Saul's life are going to bear some big fruit. Um, And come back next week because you're going to want to see how that happens. So what's our takeaway? How do we wrap this up? What's the so what on a message about being a a martyr? You know, it is my deep prayer that none of us would ever face um, that fate. It's my big faith my big prayer, that, that none of us would even face the, that physical violence. Yet if we do, are we ready, right? You see, Stephen was just a regular guy. I don't believe Stephen ever set out to change the world. I don't believe Stephen ever set out to be the first martyr. He just set out to do the next faithful thing. Do they need him to serve widows with their food? Do they need him to preach the sermon to the religious leaders? And I believe that is what God is asking us to do, to do that next faithful thing. Be bold, be courageous, go where God leads, and and we'll see what happens. Are we willing to take those next steps of faithfulness and obedience? Well, let me end. I started with a quote from Jim Elliott. Let me uh, end with one more. Jim Elliott said this. He said, missionaries, which we're all called to be, he says, missionaries, they're just very human folks just doing what they're asked. Simply a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. And that's my prayer for us as a church today.
God, I thank you so much for the story of Stephen. What an inspiration to see someone live for you, die for you, and change the world for you. Father, we want to take our place as faithful people who walk like Jesus and live like him, even if that means that one day we die like him. And so, Father, we thank you for the example. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here today, that you would give us the courage to face whatever we're facing. Some are facing real antagonism and, and, and accusation and even persecution and struggle and, and pushback. I pray that you would give us your heart to stand firm and courageously against those, to stand not in hate but in love. And Father, that you would work in each person. Help us, Lord, to be a church that even though we're filled with a bunch of nobodies, Lord, that we exist to make somebody which is you known and glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.